Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 podcast. So we're going to talk about uh, caffeine, lovely Photoshop clip art there. Um, this is the most popular psychoactive drug in North America. It may be, probably, it may be safe to say in the world, um, but for sure in North America... How many people here don't ingest caffeine? Tom, you don't ingest any caffeine. You ever eat chocolate? You don't eat chocolate? Wow. No Coca-Cola? No, no Red Bull? No. You ever take cold medication? No. No? Okay. I was bound to be the odd person, but it's pretty... Odd meaning not common, not that you're an odd person. Um, about somewhere around 90% of North American adults are dependent on caffeine. <clears throat> Which works out to about between 180 and 190 million people. And that's just in this continent. Um, it's pretty rare. and We found one person so far here, that, and that's it. Right? So, and in fact, if you look at a lot of places, like you might think alcohol would be more common, but in fact... In like Muslim countries and such, where uh, alcohol is religiously prohibited and frowned upon, even if it's available, uh, caffeine, coffee houses, places like that are really big things. So, uh, I think it may be safe to say that it's the most popular psychoactive drug in the world. That's what it looks like. Does that help everybody understand it? Yeah, um, that's a caffeine molecule. Not a whole lot else to say except that that's a caffeine. Well, that's a model of one. It doesn't exactly look like that. But you can see it's actually a pretty simple molecule. So caffeine is available in a lot of different places. Uh, coffee, you'll hear it said that a, cu- a cup of coffee has about 80 milligrams of caffeine, something like that, except that no one drinks cups of coffee because that's a teacup size, six ounces. People drink mugs of coffee. And even then, that's pretty weak coffee. So typically you're thinking 130, 140 milligrams. Most of us probably like coffee quite a bit stronger than that. So probably pushing 180, 190. A cup of tea has about 40 milligrams of coffee, or coffee, of uh, caffeine rather. Um, soft drinks like colas have between 30 and 90 uh, in a sort of can of Coke kind of thing. Uh, Pepsi has a little less than Coca-Cola, if not mistaken. Uh, I can say that there are really high caffeine colas out there. Um, in Canada, Mountain Dew has no caffeine. In the States, it does. In the States, it does. Uh, we have a law here that something that has caffeine in it has to have ingredients that would normally have caffeine in them. And the cola nut, which is what they use to make cola, has caffeine. The interesting thing is they add caffeine to Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, RC, President's Choice, whatever you're drinking. They've actually added caffeine to it. They get it from decaffeinating coffee. Um, but Mountain Dew, for example, has nothing in it that normally contains caffeine, so they can't add caffeine to Mountain Dew in Canada. The soft drink companies have been trying for years to do this because most other places, they're allowed to have caffeine in Mountain Dew, but not in Canada. 
Cold and headache medications very often between 15 and 50 milligrams. Um, indeed, one of the effects of caffeine is dilating blood vessels towards your brain, which of course makes blood flow a little bit better, can get rid of some kinds of headaches. It also, the other thing is that one of the effects of caffeine, we'll talk about this, is it opens your airway, so it's easier to breathe, so it's put in a lot of, of, of uh, cold medications. You look on the side of a cold medication, you'll often see that. Things like Rev, you ever heard about Rev? That's that, like it's a drink, it's an alcoholic drink that also has caffeine in it. It tastes like blue, like blue pop, uh, sorry, blue uh, popsicles, that's what it tastes like. And it's got probably around 100 milligrams of caffeine. It makes you a wide awake drunk. It's like drinking Irish coffee. <laughs> it just wakes you up. So things like that, and there's other ones like that. Red Bull is probably around, depending on the Red Bull, and that's a small can, you'll realize that, is between 150, something like Red Bull, energy drinks, 100, 150, but it's a really small thing. That's the thing you have to understand about that. Uh, chocolate, like a chocolate bar, can contain between 50 and 100 milligrams of caffeine. So eating a chocolate bar can give you as much caffeine as drinking a wheat cup of coffee. The reason that little kids get excited at Easter has nothing to do with the sugar, <laughs> which people always say, oh, it's all the sugar, it's the sugar. It's actually the caffeine they're ingesting. So it's really almost everywhere. Um, we tend to think of coffee and colas, but it's in a lot of other things too. Then there's like wake-up pills, you know, um, no-dose, those kind of things. And they come in doses between 100 and, say, 500 milligrams, depending on the, on the, um, on the brand. So if you take one of the 100 milligram ones, you're basically, or a couple of those, you're basically, it's the same as having a large coffee. This is about the only way you can overdose on caffeine. It's virtually impossible. The only way you can do it is by eating a whole bottle of, those, of, the, of the strong pills, and still then you probably wouldn't OD. It's a, stimulants tend to be hard to, to OD on. You, you have to take a lot before something actually gives you a heart attack from your heart beating too fast. But something like heroin or alcohol, you have to take enough that it puts you to sleep and you don't wake up again, which is obviously, you know, slows your breathing to the point where you stop breathing. That's quite a bit easier. So stimulants tend to be, in, in general, a lot harder to overdose on. It's almost always, of course, taken orally. I've never heard of anybody, you know, you always hear people joking about mainlining coffee, but typically they don't, people don't do that. Uh, I have seen people crush up caffeine pills and snort them. Um, in my misspent youth. So it's absorbed in the small intestine. It crosses all barriers. So it crosses the blood-brain barrier. It crosses the, obviously, it crosses the placental barrier. So, and anybody here who's ever been pregnant knows that when you have a cup of coffee when you're pregnant, sometimes the baby gets a little active. It's absorbed more slowly from cold beverages. So while there may be, let's say, an equivalent amount of caffeine in a cup of tea and a bottle of Coke, the tea is going to give you more of a caffeine hit than the Coke is because it's ingested much more quickly. 
or absorbed, I'm sorry, much more quickly. Look at that, less than 2% of the caffeine that we ingest in adult humans is excreted. In other words, we use all of it in our brains. Most everything else, think about alcohol. When we, absorb, when we excrete alcohol, we actually excrete alcohol before it ends up getting absorbed a lot of the time because we can smell it in our breath, right? It actually comes out. Or we pee it out or whatever. This isn't the case with caffeine. Caffeine is, we're, we, break it, we take it, we use it in our brains, and we break it down. That's in adults, by the way. That's in adults. We'll talk about kids shortly. It's an entirely different deal in kids. But in adults, it works like that. Historically, caffeine was used in... Um, when you think about like colas and stuff like that, they were, they were originally medicines, right? There's a reason that back in... You think back to the old movies, the 1940s kind of thing, where people were drinking at the soda fountain at the, at the drugstore. And that's because... Things like Coke and Pepsi and that were originally developed as medicines. Now, they were medicines that supposedly cured everything. Right? You, know, you think of like uh, Homer Simpson and his father going around selling that, uh, that, that, that tonic. Well, that was a big thing. People used to go from town to town and sell these, quote, medicines. And the thing is, what they put in them typically, there'd be a bit of alcohol to give people a bit of a feeling. You know, there'd be a bit of caffeine or a lot of caffeine because that certainly would wake you up. And in fact, with Coca-Cola, originally uh, some cocaine. What would happen then is that people had, they would feel something good. And of course, by the time they realized that it's only a short-term effect and hasn't cured their ailment, the guy's gone on to the next town. But this is why it was served originally in drugstores. So it was originally thought of as a medicine. And there's all these great stories about how that perhaps it was probably, you always hear it's like Ethiopians that discovered coffee and its effects. And there's this apocryphal story of some goat herder with his goats and it eats some coffee berries. And then the goat gets all crazy and excited. So, of course, he then does some, eats the berries and he feels the same way and the rest is history, except that we don't know that that's true. Metabolism of caffeine, half-life between 30 minutes and three and a half hours, depending on the user, uh, which, which means, in fact, for, for many people, you actually can have a cup of coffee and go to bed in an hour, <clears throat> and there's very little effect on you. And some people are like that. For some of us, it, it's, I, I can't do that. I, I can't drink a can of Coke after dinner. I'll, I'll be up all night. So it depends on the person. But this is a pretty quick half-life, 30 minutes to three and a half hours. The metabolism is slowed by birth control pills. So if you're taking birth control pills, right, um, and this is through enzyme depression, what ends up happening is you don't break the caffeine down as quickly. So if you're taking birth control pills, having a coffee at night, you're more likely, it's more likely to keep you up because it's not getting broken down. Strangely enough, it's sped up by broccoli. So if you eat broccoli speeds up the metabolism of caffeine, which means you can then have more caffeine in your body and not have the same effect as someone who hasn't eaten broccoli. It's also two times faster in smokers than it is in non-smokers. So smokers can drink more coffee than non-smokers, which kind of, when you think about it, if you ever, coffee and cigarette often go together, I guess it makes some sense. 
That was, well, that was with adults. Well, at least not kids. I mean, so it's hard to know where the cutoff is. With young kids, I would say toddlers and below, and probably safely before puberty, it works entirely differently. It's a totally different deal in kids and infants. We know for sure in infants and toddlers, yes, that the, the metabolism, the whole different set of pathways. We also know, for example, well, and it also makes some sense considering birth control pills and all that stuff, there might be some hormonal effects here with uh, enzyme depression. It might be the case that your mom was right when she said you were too young to drink coffee when you were 10 years old. You said, I want some coffee. Oh, no, you're too young for that. You, she may have actually had a point. Because in little kids, 95% of, it, now 85% of it's excreted. In other words, it doesn't get, end up getting used. And you think, oh, that's no big deal. So 15% of it gets used, but the half-life is four days. So while most of it gets peed out and it doesn't affect their brain, the bit that's there stays there. And of course, you've got to think about dosages in milligrams per kilogram. When a kid has a Coke, this, is, this I think explains why there's always kids running around at top speed at McDonald's. Right? It's one of these things where you ever, you ever see people like that are like they got like a little baby in a stroller and the kid's got a, a bottle and it's got Coke in it? Have you ever seen that? Yeah, if you see that, you should, instead of, I used to, it used to bother me because I used to think, well, I'm going to go tell, the, you know, what are you doing your little kid, little tiny developing teeth? You're going to break it down with sugar and carbonic acid. You know what? They're going to pay for it because their kid's going to be up for like three weeks. Okay? And like I said, I think this explains things like the excitement that kids have at, say, Easter when they're running around, they eat a lot of chocolate. It's got nothing to do with the sugar. It's totally about the caffeine. So there's 15%. Let's say a kid has a chocolate bar. Do the math here. A chocolate bar. He's got it. Um, it's got 100 milligrams of caffeine in it. You eat a chocolate bar in perhaps 30 minutes. Half of it is gone. So with you, 50 milligrams. Another half an hour, 25 milligrams. Another half an hour, 13 milligrams. 12 and a half. So if you've got that 30-minute metabolism, you're fine. So in an hour and a half, you're down to 13. The kid in four days is down to seven and a half. And you're down to four days in two hours. Because think about that. The kid, 15%, 85%, the kid's just going to pee out. But 15% is going to be there, and half of that will be there in four days. In other words, they're down to 17, sorry, seven and a half percent in four days, which took you about two hours. You get down now, let's see, we're at 15. No, it wasn't 15. Was it? You're getting down around, around two and a half hours. If you've had a chocolate bar, a big one with 100 milligrams of caffeine in it, you're now down to about three and a quarter milligrams of caffeine still percolating in there. Four days later, the kid's there. In eight days, this child still has as much as you had in two and a half hours. You should not be giving little children caffeine. I, I don't care. Go ahead. Caffeine's pretty safe. It doesn't really, there's no big deal. But it, it keeps you awake. Yeah, please. Is there any difference with uh, elderly? When you get, like, say, 
older people tend to be closer to the three hour than the three than, than the half hour. Half life. Yeah. Same sort of thing with most drugs, like with alcohol as well. Yeah, most of them. No, because kids have an entirely different metabolic pathway. Yeah, say so you get chocolate-covered broccoli, everything's good. Yeah. It's crazy. So, like I said, just, I would, I would, you know, we have sort of a rule in our house for our son. I don't care, you know, daughter's 16, no big deal. She drinks coffee in the morning. For the son, he doesn't get Coke. He gets the odd chocolate. But no Coke. No Coke. It's hard enough with an autistic kid getting him to sleep through the night. Like he woke up this morning at uh, 12.30, 1 o'clock, 1.30, 2 o'clock, 2.30, 3 o'clock. At 3 o'clock he got up, went into the living room, turned up YouTube as loud as he could and started laughing uproariously at videos. It was great. So if I seem a little tired, it's because of that. And then I told him to go back to bed. And then he went and slept with me, and his mother switched beds with him, so she slept in his bunk bed. And he slept beside me, and he fell asleep, except that he jumps around all the time in his sleep, like he's rolling around. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of... We might end the class a little short today, I'm just saying. <laughs> so think of that, and you throw in, like, a Coke. No. No, we got us a rule. Like I said, different pathways in metabolism in adults. In fact, the metabolism of pathways that kids use is more similar to like a non-human. So kids are like rats on so many levels. They're furry and cute. That's what I meant. Why evolutionarily do we have a different metabolic pathway and a very efficient one? I don't know of any drug where you excrete only 2% of it. I don't know. I've never heard a, a good reason. We haven't been around. Yes, do humans, do we all come from Africa? Sure. Do we all come from around Ethiopia? Probably that area. Was there coffee growing there in the, you know, 150,000 years ago? Probably. I just can't see that they were having, eating that much coffee and it had that much of a selective advantage. I, it just seems so very strange to me. I don't know what it is. And I've never read a, a, a satisfactory evolutionary explanation as to why. It's true, but I don't know if anybody knows why. And you'd think that it'd be true, you know, in other apes. <laughs> it just isn't. Weird. Okay, neurophysiological effects. We don't really know how this works either. The legal drugs are not that, in, are, are, are so hard to understand, and I have no idea why. It's like maybe we're not interested in them because they're legal. We don't quite know how this works. Now, what it might do is block adenosine. Adenosine acts as a neuromodulator, and it inhibits firing. Okay? So it might be the case that caffeine then disinhibits. And you'll hear this sort of as a... You'll hear some people that drink a lot of coffee somehow justifying it. I don't think you have to justify I don't care. But you'll hear someone say, well, it's not really a stimulant. All it's doing is stopping me from being tired. And you're looking at it, well, that's what a stimulant is. It doesn't really matter the mechanism, but it seems that that's sort of out there. I've also heard people, this is one of my favorites, 
Oh, no, the, the caffeine in coffee is active caffeine, but it's not active in tea. I've heard that one too. What the hell does that mean? It's not active in tea. Ooh, I spelled doses funny there, didn't I? High doses, when I talk about high doses, I'm talking a thousand milligrams. So a gram of caffeine. But you can get from drinking a pot of coffee. You ever drank a pot of coffee? You ever been studying, like in about an hour and a half, you drink a whole pot of coffee? That would block benzodiazepine receptors. So that's the time, if you want, take some Valium. <laughs> totally kidding. But it doesn't block it at the, regu- at the sort of standard levels we tend to ingest caffeine at, so it's not like it's blocking sort of our endogenous Valium. It doesn't seem to be doing that. And we know at low levels it does have an effect. And most of us know this, right? You can have a cup of coffee and it will wake you up. Right? How many people here wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee? Before the cup of coffee, you feel tired after you wake after you have your cup of coffee. You're ready to start your day. Yeah. Who feels like that? Nobody? What are you, a bunch of liars? Because most people are like that, right? Standard thing. And how many people here take heroin? Come on, really, seriously. And smooth it out with a little bit of, you know, anyway. Who here takes speed and smooths it out with a little bit of heroin? Anyone? Come on. Sure you do. What are you, liars? Who here takes angel dust? No one? So it's interesting, though, because we know that it works at very low levels. Very low levels. Half a cup of coffee. Once you start drinking that coffee, it will actually wake. It'll, it'll, you'll start to feel awake. A little more focused, a little less fuzzy. Right? So if that's the case, it's the adenosine blockage, assuming that's how it works. It's blocking those receptors that, excuse me, it's blocking those receptors that's actually doing that at a very low level. It may, might cause the release of epinephrine. We don't know that that's true. We don't, it looks like it does. The data show that sometimes it does and sometimes it, it's, just, it's unclear. It's really un, uh, unappealing, this whole thing. It causes smooth muscles to react, of relax, and striate muscles to contract. Right? Smooth muscles are the involuntary ones, right? And striate muscles are the voluntary ones. Okay. Decreases airway resistance. This is one of the reasons, in fact, that for asthma, it's often used in sort of, not, not the kind of puffer medication, but sometimes in just like pills people take when, lower, when they don't have nearly as serious asthma. But also a lot of time in colds, it's because it decreases airway resistance. Indeed, it's the case that even literally waking up and smelling the coffee, as people say, can... If you have a bit of a stuffy nose, and I'm dead serious about this, not so much that you can't smell, right? But if you have a stuffy nose and you can still smell, if you make a pot of coffee and smell it, because of the classical conditioning that goes on, it literally will clear your sinuses. And it, it won't do this because of... Uh, it's doing this basically because your body has learned this, the classical conditioning, right? The CS is the smell of the coffee. The US would actually be... 
ingesting the caffeine, the unconditioned response is the same as the conditioned response in this case, which is making is, is decreasing airway resistance. I tell people this all the time. In fact, I remember one night a guy I know on a guy I know on Twitter, actually I also know him in person in person. Met him at a couple of media new media conferences. And he was complaining about how he had stuff he knows and he had no medicine and it was really late. I said, go make a pot of coffee and sniff it. Or even just open up some thing of can of coffee and just smell it. And he thought I was nuts. And then five minutes later, he came back and typed, at the Broadbeck is right. I can breathe. It's really strange. And of course, you might know this, that one of the, those of you that get, have withdrawal symptoms from caffeine, when you wake up in the morning, you're kind of stuffed up. Just a little. I don't mean bad, but like, you know, that kind of stuffed up, just for a little bit. And you wake up in the morning, you start making coffee, and suddenly that's gone. Notice that tomorrow morning, those of you who don't think you have withdrawal symptoms from caffeine. When you start making coffee, suddenly I can breathe. <laughs> Causes constriction of blood vessels in the brain. Um, this can be good to help with headaches sort of the pounding kind of headache, uh, but also it can be bad for migraines, apparently. Though the data on caffeine and migraines aren't really horribly clear. They're mostly anecdotal things. Mostly that's people with migraines saying, yeah, I can't have coffee, sometimes I get a migraine. Yep. You had a question? Yeah. Um, why do they put the coffee beans like at a perfume area? I've never even seen that. Um, I, don't, I try to avoid perfume areas at all costs. <laughs> Like, always creepy old women squirting you. <laughs> or women that wear too much makeup squirting you. Really? They put coffee beans there? Yeah, and you're like supposed to smell it and clears your... Oh, yeah, well, because it'll clear... Yeah, because it would clear your... Uh, if you're stuffed up a little bit. That would be why. Or like if you're smelling different wines, it's supposed to... Yeah. It's supposed to sort of cleanse your palette. nose palate? <laughs> Is that sure. your nose-it? <laughs> you call that your pal-nose? Not sure. That would, it would make some sense for the first time through, because if you're going to smell something, it would actually clear. They could also use wasabi. That would work well. Uh, but it's also something that doesn't sort of linger, like something like, say, wasabi, which would, which would work, or hot mustard, horseradish. That would be great, eh? Smell this. Now it's burned the inside of your nose. Do you like this perfume? <laughs> I know that, in fact, a lot of uh, chefs use it. Uh, in this whole movement of molecular gastronomy, these people that use chemistry and cookery together... And they'll do things with, like, spritzing coffee essence into the air to clear people's sinuses so they can smell more clearly because then they have, I don't know, all kinds of crazy things that they do in the flavors and the what have you. You know, like Wiley Dufresne and Heston Blumenthal, those guys. Nobody here else is a food geek, are they? Okay, well, I'll just move on then. So if you get dilation of blood vessels other places... It improves performance. By performance, I mean cognitive performance. So we're talking about doing things like vigilance tasks or math problems, adding and subtracting, multiplying, dividing, that kind of thing. But 
It reduces drowsiness and boredom. It actually, and you can actually, that studies have actually done this. You ask people if they're bored, you give them some caffeine, ask them again if they're bored. Some of the people take caffeine, some of the people don't take caffeine. They don't know what group they're in. These are properly designed experiments. And the people that have had caffeine show less boredom. But it's hard to tell if it actually improves performance on cognitive tasks. Other than the waking you up part. It increases fatty acid levels, so it actually could be performance enhancing. Especially for long athletic events. Um, but it even could be true for short athletic events. Because, in fact, it turns out that it's a controlled substance, not a banned substance, in international competitions. So the Olympics are coming up. One of the things everyone gets tested for, the medalists, they get tested for the amount of caffeine they have in their... That's one of the things they test for in their urine, right? And I know it's only very little is excreted, but they can still determine if it's too much. Um, it's very common that high-performance athletes will ingest a great deal of caffeine just before an event on the notion that it might help performance, right? Because cognitive performance also includes, you know, uh, a reaction time. Maybe you react to the starter's gun a little more quickly. Yeah, please. So then would it help or inhibit, like, fine motor skills? At higher levels, it isn't good for fine motor skills because you get tremors. Yeah. Yeah. At low levels, and again, we feel the psychological effects literally at a sip of coffee. Humans can, de- can discriminate two milligrams of caffeine from no milligrams of caffeine. That's literally a very small sip of a weak cup of coffee. So we can actually tell the difference in a pill. Not even the flavor, because I know I, I can tell the flavor of decaffeinated coffee a mile away. But even just a, a pill. So at that small level, it probably isn't doing enough to give you, give you, give you tremors or anything like that uh, because of the contraction of striated muscle, right? That's why you get the tremors. But it might be doing something for performance. But at larger levels, yeah, you'd be, you'd be twitchy. But I know that uh, from having a friend that was a world-class sprinter who used to train actually with um, Ben Johnson and whose coach was Charlie Francis, who actually came to my friend Jim once and said, you know, we could improve your times. And he said, no, thanks. Which is why, A, he never went to the Olympics, and B, he never went to the Olympics and got shamed in front of the whole country. Uh, but it's an old buddy of mine who's a, actually a, a psychology professor in Newfoundland. And he said that one of the things they would do before events is they would take caffeine pills. The athletes always say, well, it's just so I can have a cup of coffee when I get up in the morning, except it's more like they're having 10 cups of coffee. They take about, you know, six, eight, nine hundred milligrams of caffeine a lot of times. So it's a controlled substance, though. So if you get beyond that, you're going too far. In international competition, it's different in, you know, professional competition where they hardly ever test you unless you hit 700 home runs a year. Then they say, no, I don't think he's on steroids. So... It increases your time in light sleep. That's stage one and stage two. Stage one's that place where you're kind of half asleep. You know that thing where you're lying there and you start to think weird things and you know you're falling asleep? Like you think things like, I wonder if I can get itchy on the inside of my skin. Like just weird things like that come to mind. 
You're sort of half awake and half asleep. And stage two, you're asleep at that point, but it's very light sleep and you can be woken up very easily. Someone turns the light on in the room or turns the TV off because you fell asleep on the couch. I was watching that, my dad used to always say. You were watching Blue's Clues, Dad? Um, You're going to spend more time in light sleep. So you're not going to get as rested. It can counteract barbiturates, again, in larger doses. So we get a an additive effect there, right, where the barbiturate is being counteracted by the stimulant properties of caffeine. Small doses in non-humans, here we're talking rats, increase spontaneous motor activity. Again, you know, the thing with the photo beams and the rat running around on the board. As the doses get larger, what happens is the animal stops moving around. So you get, again, the typical sort of inverted U-shape dose-response curve here. You get an increase in fixed ratio responding. Again, fixed ratio is the animal has to push, say, a bar 10 times to get some food. It does it more quickly when it's on caffeine. This is probably because of a timing effect. I mentioned, I think, uh, a couple classes ago that the counting and timing mechanisms in, it, it seems at least, in animals are very closely linked. It, increased, it increases suppressed behavior. I talked about this the other day, right? Like, so you get behavior, you get the rat trained to push the bar. Pushing the bar. And then you teach the animal that when a light comes on, it gets shocked. Okay? Now what you do is you see if the light can suppress behavior. What do you do? You, you put the light on while the rat's pushing the bar. What you end up with is the rat pushes the bar a whole lot less when the light comes on, even though there's no shock anymore. It's suppressing behavior. If you do this, the animal's trained up like this, but then you give it caffeine, the amount of suppressed behavior goes up. In other words, they respond more when the light's on. So you understand the, the technique here? Do you see, understand how these experiments work? So again, the rat is trained to push the bar, let's say, 10 times to get a piece of food. He's also trained that when a light comes on, the floor is electrified. You then can see, can the light suppress behavior by putting the light on while the rat has to push the bar. You then get a measure of how, many, how much the rat pushes the bar when the light's on versus how much the rat pushes the bar when the light's off. It's called a suppression ratio. If, it's, if, if the ratio is 1.0, there's no suppression. right? If you get zero, you get complete suppression because you're doing during the light divided by not during the light. Now you give them caffeine and you end up with a higher suppression ratio, meaning less suppression. Okay? It's a typical stimulant effect, really. It generalizes to cocaine, but not to amphetamine. Now, when I say that, I mean that if a rat learns that cocaine, that, that pushing a bar will lead to caffeine... Right? Then it can quickly learn that pushing a bar leads to cocaine. But it can't learn, it's, it's no better at learning. So to learn, ah, 
First you teach the rat that when it pushes the bar, it gets caffeine. Rats like this. Now, you've got one group of rats that have been taught that pushing the bar leads to caffeine and one group that hasn't been. Now you're going to see if they can learn to push the bar for cocaine. The rats that have learned to push the bar for caffeine more quickly learn to push the bar for, ca- for cocaine than the rats that haven't been taught to push the bar for caffeine. And you might think, well, they just learned to push the bar. However, if you put amphetamine in there instead, which rats will push bars for, they're not any more quick if they've had it previously with caffeine, which is really a weird result. Because amphetamine and cocaine, while they are somewhat different in their physiological effects, are similar enough that when we talk about stimulants, I'm going to talk about them almost always in the same breath. And the molecules are very similar. The behavioral effects are very similar. Why did my son get up at 3 o'clock in the morning? Maybe he was pushing a bar for cocaine. I would explain it all somehow. You should never leave your coke out. (laughs) These are parenting tips. I just give them out for free. But it's an odd result. It's an odd result. So I said 2 milligrams, actually, that was rounding. 1.8 milligrams and no milligrams of caffeine, humans can discriminate. So I give you a pill, and I ask you, have you had caffeine or not? We can get down as low as 1.8 milligrams of caffeine. That's hardly anything. It's literally a sip of weak coffee. And I mean a little tiny sip. Because how many sips of coffee are in a cup of coffee? 20? Right? In a decent kind of co- cup of coffee, that's like one one hundredth of the cup of coffee. Because a Tim Hortons coffee is around 200, a large one. So if you had a Tim Hortons cup of coffee and had little one one hundredth sips, you'd be able to notice if it was... That's the amount of caffeine you're ingesting. You can actually notice. You can ask people, does that caffeine? Or they go, yes, and they're correct. That's incredible. You can ask people how they feel when they take caffeine. And those of you that take caffeine know about this. They feel energized, focused, and motivated. Right? You know this, that sometimes you don't want to work on a paper, you don't want to study, you have some coffee, and you get to it. Or you have a Coke, and you get to it. It seems to focus you, and it gives you energy. Which I could probably use right about now. Interestingly enough, this is the same in non-users. So people that don't, so Tom, if we did, gave you some coffee, you'd feel the same way. You'd report these same things. This is here about low to moderate doses, 20 to say 200 milligrams of caffeine. So this is a cup of coffee. Well, it's going from a small chocolate bar to a cup of coffee. A large Tim Hortons coffee, say. Okay.
Tolerance, one of the reasons we have this idea about adenosine receptors is sustained use of caffeine leads to an increase in adenosine receptors in your nervous system. So it looks like it's got something to do with it. If you give a big dose to a non-user, everything changes. So a large dose to a non-user. So again, we'll use our friend Tom over here, and we slip him a gram of caffeine, the equivalent of a pot of coffee. Though most of us in the room that ingest caffeine, we would feel a little jumpy. You know, kind of like, you know, Dr. Hermedia. You got to cut down. I don't think he actually even drinks coffee. I just always tell him there are decaffeinated brands on the market, Julian. He's very frenetic. He makes me look calm and relaxed. It's my take anyway. If you gave a non-user a large dose like that, they'll have a panic. They'll have the same feeling as a panic attack. My God, my heart's beating fast. I'm twitchy. I don't know why. See, the thing is, we're used to that, so we get some caffeine and we're like, yeah, no big deal. We know that we're going to get a little twitchy. We know that our heart's going to be fast. It's to the point where we're so used to it, it doesn't matter anymore, right? But for the non-user, they're not used to this. They don't have the, the, tolerance, the behavioral tolerance, right? They're not used to it. And they end up basically having a panic attack. Withdrawal symptoms... Uh, which are, of course, show you have dependence. This is what most North American adults, what happens to them when you wake up in the morning, you have a headache. You might have flu-like symptoms, basically aches and pains, runny nose, stuffed up a bit. Really, in general, just anger. Just generalized anger. And you can get those withdrawal symptoms typically by ingesting about 100 milligrams of caffeine a day. In other words, a cup of coffee in the morning is enough to give you withdrawal symptoms. It's also enough to almost immediately take them away when you, take, when you drink it. So that's a good thing. Do you know that well over 50% of all office arguments that lead to firings happen between 9 and 9.30 in the morning at places of work. And this has been attributed to people not having a cup of coffee yet. Who knows if it's true, but it seems to me that if that's the case, there wouldn't be much of a loss of productivity if everyone grabbed a coffee on the way in and had it so they weren't all pissed off all the time. to self-administer it, they will, but it's, it's harder than, say, something like cocaine, which is very straightforward. Um, it will prime cocaine use, so if you give rats caffeine, they're then more likely to make a choice to take cocaine. So the rat has previously learned that if I push this bar, I get some cocaine. Before that, you inject him with caffeine. He is then more likely to push the bar and more quickly for cocaine. In humans, there's a lot of um, variation. When I talk about task demands here, what I'm saying is that if something is, requires more concentration 
more focus, we tend to consume more caffeine. Right? And you guys know this, everybody but Tom. You guys know that when you're studying, you're more likely to drink caffeine, drink coffee, than when you're not studying. You might not ever drink caffeine, drink coffee, ingest caffeine at night. Right? Well, a lot of people sort of have that policy. After dinner, I don't drink coffee. It keeps me up. Except if you've got to study. And you may not even be doing it for the keeping you up. It's like, that. it focuses me. So the harder something is, the more likely we are, even though we don't really have any evidence that it does anything, people do use it that way. It also depends on your caffeine experience. People that are non-users aren't typically going to choose to have a cup of coffee. So if you have very little experience with caffeine, you're not going to go out and ingest caffeine. This is the same kind of thing that happens with, say, kids. They don't tend to be wanting coffee a whole lot, right? even though it smells so good and all that. The demand for caffeine, and we can get this by looking at coffee buying patterns, is relatively inelastic. In the late 1970s, there was a horrible frost in Colombia, Brazil, all over South America, where we get most of our coffee. The price of, ca- of coffee went up to $6 a pound. And you've got to realize that that's more than it costs now, because that's about $14 a kilo. And that was for lousy coffee. And that's in 1978 dollars. Right? So you adjust for inflation, and there were a few years in there when it was 20, 20%-ish, 15, 10, 10% in the early 80s. That's like coffee being 40 bucks a pound now, so about $85 a kilo, and people kept buying coffee. So we love caffeine. Can anything bad happen to you from caffeine? Well, can you, does it lead to cancer? There's been there's talk of this, liver, kidney, things like that. It, there's no data really suggesting it clearly. With normal use, I mean, I, again, I'm not talking about eating handfuls of it every day. You can drink too much water and die. Something that can happen is something called caffeinism. And caffeinism is kind of like the equivalent of amphetamine psychosis, but it's just too much caffeine. This is when, and maybe, I don't know, you've ever had this experience. I've had this experience. I used to TA this uh, course in learning when I was in grad school. And the prof was the one, he made it, always made me come. And I had no idea why, because, I mean, I was the TA. I already knew the material. But I had to sit through these horribly boring... Learning is boring stuff. It's hard... And it's, it's kind of cool, but some of it's really boring. Those of you that I've taught learning to know that partway through the year I say things like, I may fall asleep during this lecture. So I'd sit there and I'd just go to my office when I was in grad school and brew a whole pot of really strong coffee and just bring it there and just drink it. And I've had this experience where afterwards you're really shaky, kind of paranoid, racing thoughts, that kind of thing. That's caffeinism. You may have had that. It's pretty harmless. goes away. Again, we metabolize caffeine quickly. It's unpleasant as hell, though. It's unpleasant as hell. Can you overdose on caffeine? Well, if you did it, you'd have to drink about 80 cups of coffee. 
yeah, well, you do it with pills. It can be done, but it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. I've heard of maybe two cases ever. Could you not sleep for a long time? Yeah, but you're not going to probably kill yourself. People talk about the effects on reproduction. So you've heard, you may have heard this if you know somebody who's pregnant or you've been pregnant. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, it does chromosome damage. A lot of these studies where they talk about so-called chromosome damage, what they do is they take a cell and they just pour the substance on it to the point where it's so concentrated you put too much mother's milk on it. Mother's milk causes chromosome damage. The same sort of thing you hear about LSD, actually. Probably not. In fact, caffeine typically is a pretty safe thing if you're pregnant. One of the issues here is, what about, think about, um, it's crossing the placental barrier, right? So if you drink coffee as a pregnant woman, you're going to pass that on to the kid. Fair enough. Now, for us, it's between 3,000 and 8,000 Milligrams that could hurt us. Now, the thing is, babies are small. So it might be the case then that a much, it takes a much smaller dose, and sort of the idea of it being, becoming toxic, you know, and leading to like overdose, would be much less for a, for a baby. The thing is, not all the caffeine passes to the baby. So unless you drink a lot of coffee or take a lot of caffeine pills, which seems an odd thing for someone to do when they're pregnant. Um, it's not that big a deal. Some women report, a lot of women report they don't drink uh, coffee anymore when they're pregnant because it leads to uh, heartburn, and a lot of women have heartburn when they're pregnant already, so they stop drinking drinking coffee. But it it doesn't seem, you don't ever hear a doctor when they'll tell you don't drink, don't smoke, they don't say don't drink any coffee. Are there cardiac effects? Now, yes, now, on one level, yes, there's a huge cardiac effect. If you drink 75 cups of coffee, your heart explodes. So that's a big cardiac effect, but that's not what I'm talking about here. People used to think, for a time in the early 80s, these data came out and said, it leads to high cholesterol. Because, of course, as you know, anything good is bad for you. This is why bacon and cigarettes and alcohol, like the trinity of awesome, are all bad for you. It's like, oh, not coffee. Not coffee. It turns out, though, it depends on how you brew coffee. Um, A lot of times when you make coffee, depending on how you... You ever use the French press method? You know that? What that does is it pushes the the water, the grounds through the coffee, like through through the water. And in fact, when it's done right, it actually leaves... But with good coffee, it sometimes will leave little spots of oil on the top, right? It's coffee oil. Coffee oil is a tropical oil. Not that good for you. If you do it through the filter method, and by the way, it tastes better that way. If you do it through the filter method, the way most of us do it in North America, it's completely harmless to your heart because there's no oil. It gets all caught in that filter. It tastes better the other way, though. Or making Turkish coffee. Oh, you ever do that? You grind it up fine like a powder, like uh, as fine as like um, baby powder. And then you cook it in the water and you bring it almost to a boil. Never boil coffee. It ruins it. And then 
down a little bit, and you leave a little simmer. Oh. And you put about three tablespoons of coffee in for like one cup of coffee. And then a bit of sugar, actually a lot of sugar, and some milk, and it's awesome. That actually would be not good for you because it would be full of the coffee oil still sitting in there. But again, the only time it ever showed up was when people were ingesting all this coffee oil. And the amount of oil you'd have to probably ingest would be so high. You know, so there was a small significant effect. It turns out if you drink it the way most North Americans make coffee and, and you say, well, a lot of people in the world, it's not going to have any effect on you. This is interesting because it seems like a pretty safe drug. Right? This doesn't seem like something's going to hurt you. So people that get all worried about decaffeinated coffee, I wonder why they drink it, you know. What's the use? You know, though, it looks like right uh, through crossbreeding and playing with genetics a little bit, it looks like you're coming out with a caffeine, like a coffee bean that has no caffeine in it. So, I don't know. I think that would ruin it still. Part of the nice bitter taste of coffee is from the caffeine. Now, McKim sort of makes this point in the book. <laughs> yeah, it seems safe. And most of the research is funded by coffee. Now, I don't think there's a giant conspiracy here. And in fact, I don't think he says that in the book either. I think he just sort of says it's interesting that a lot of these conferences on, and they present papers like how caffeine improves maze running ability in rats, and you look and it's funded by some coffee company. I really doubt that we have anything here that's even remotely close to how bad, say, oh, I don't know, alcohol or tobacco are for you. But it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. If somebody would want to do a paper on the negative effects of caffeine, I'd like to read that because, I mean, it's, it's one of these things where it doesn't look like there's anything horribly negative. So it's something to think about, but I'm not too concerned about it. Any questions? I'm really tired. I want to go home. So I can sleep before my son comes home from school.
is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.